Coming up on today's show, why comparing the pandemic to the Holocaust is not only ridiculous, but highly offensive. Dr. Lloyd Axworthy joins us to talk about Canada's foreign policy and Facebook. They're doing something with limiting political content during the election campaign. What does it mean? What are they doing? Have they even done anything? Last week, um, I was talking briefly about how sometimes we can veer off into irrationality and unreasonable discussions surrounding this and the dangers therein. Um, And it was brought uh, up, uh, I was talking about uh, the sudden influx of people once we started talking about vaccine certificates, vaccine passports, vaccine mandates. uh, You've seen it. If you've been on social media for all of 30 seconds, you've seen these comparisons to um, Nazis and what the Jews had to do. And you've seen people posting pictures of um, tattoos that were worn by people in concentration camps and um, the yellow star badge that Jews had to wear. Um, And those kinds of discussions and those kinds of comparisons are not helpful. And in fact, they're very, very hurtful. So we're going to have a discussion here because a number of people reached out and said, some said you shouldn't talk about this. Don't even give it oxygen. Other people said, no, 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 we do need to have a discussion about this. We have to talk about this and explain why these kinds of comparisons are not only ludicrous, but they're damaging and they're hurtful to a lot of people. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to chat with Ariel Kimmel. Okay, I'm going to bring you on the air. I have to try and work two people at the same time, Ariel, so be patient with me here. I sometimes mess this up. Um, she is a government relations consultant and a second-generation Holocaust survivor. And we also have joining us Steve uh, Schaefer, who is an Edmonton-based lawyer and president of the Jewish Federation of Edmonton. Do I have you both on the air? You do. Steve, yep. are you there? I am. Fantastic. Excellent. First of all, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate you both taking the time. Um, I guess let's start the discussion with you, Ariella, and just talk about when we when we see these kinds of comparisons. Um, let's just point out why they're so ridiculous and why they're so hyperbolic and hysterical, and um, and then we can get into the the damaging impact that it has. But first of all, why is it just a ridiculous comparison to try and make? Um, it's ridiculous for a lot of reasons, Shay. You know, I, I'm actually a third-generation survivor. My grandmother is the only survivor in our family. She lost both her both her parents. Um, and it is a ridiculous comparison because, you know, she was Austrian. She um, she watched the Nazis march into Austria in 1938, um, and they immediately lost their rights. Um, my great-grandmother was killed in a concentration camp, um, and my great-grandfather was killed because, as a Jew, he wasn't allowed access to medication to treat his diabetes. Um, vaccine passports might feel to some people who don't choose, are choosing not to get vaccinated as an inconvenience, but it's not a discri- it's not discrimination. And it is not, um, you know, and what is upsetting to me is, you know, I, I, I believe we're in the last generation that will have the opportunity to hear from Holocaust survivors firsthand. And this is just uh, feeding the uh, Holocaust denial. And it's um, really um, hurting the narrative of, you know, of, of education. Steve, when we take a look at that um, and we see you know, the comparisons being drawn. Um, first of all, you know, sure, it, it does limit the things that some people can do, but going to a hockey game um, is not the same as the kind of limits that were placed on Jews under the Nazi regime. Talk about what wearing that yellow star meant, um, what it led to ultimately, um, and just what a, a divisive element that was at the time. Um, so... 
I am as well, like uh, Ariella, I am a, a third generation Holocaust survivor. Uh, my uh, grandparents both uh, both survived. Uh, my my grandmother forced labor camps, and my grandfather was in Auschwitz and had a tattoo on his arm. Um, they were both forced to wear yellow stars when the Nazis uh, invaded Poland in 1939, and they both immediately lost all of their rights. And the punishment for not wearing the yellow star... Um was, was death. death, right? Correct. Was was murder. And the Nazis used the yellow star as a first of numerous laws to segregate the Jews, to round them up, to eventually uh, put them all in one area so they could then use them as forced labor and then uh, move them to mass killing centers such as Auschwitz, as well as numerous others. And it was, it was a government-designed plan to exterminate a people for who they were. A vaccine passport, whether or not we've got one, is a plan to help keep people safe. It is the exact opposite. So by equating the two, you are not only denying what happened in the Holocaust, but you are delegitimizing what happened to the victims of the Holocaust and the survivors. And Ariel, I think that's the important point. When you, when you draw this comparison, um, and you know what? People can be concerned about it and they can feel they're being unfairly treated and things like that. But when you draw the comparisons between what a vaccine certificate means and what the yellow star meant, um, it, it, I don't want to use the word cheapens, but I can't think of another one. It really cheapens. It delegitimizes what we know was probably the greatest human tragedy in the history of our planet. It, it minimizes it, and to be honest, it, it and tries to delegitimize the stories that our survivors are telling us. Um, you know, then as I said before, there's only you know we're in the last generations that will get to hear them firsthand, and you'll you know. People like me and Steve will carry on our grandparents' stories, but um, it's becoming more and more easy for deniers to um, to get out there, and, and they feel more comfortable speaking about it. And this narrative has been running, you know, since the beginning. Uh, there was comparisons of lockdowns sure, yes. to Anne Frank, <laughs> uh, and you know, I can't I can't leave my home right now. I'm I'm like Anne Frank. Well, no, Anne Frank couldn't was hiding in a basement because. Um, her family was being was going to be deported and, and were eventually deported and killed in concentration camps. So uh, the comparison is, you know, for lack of a better term, nauseating for me. Um, but it does it delegitimizes the uh, and and minimizes the, the experiences of, of Holocaust of victims. Um, I'll put last one for you guys, and either one of you can weigh in, or both of you if you want. Um, and and I'm seeing it on the text line as we as we talk, and it's what I always, whenever we discuss this, and, and I'm sure you've seen it. Um, okay, we're not saying it's the same, but this is how it started. This is the slippery slope that we entered down. I know you guys have done a lot of work about how this all came about and led to the Holocaust. Are we on that slippery slope? Is asking people to be vaccinated to go? to a hockey game or to get on an airplane, is that the start of the slippery slope? Can you make a parallel to history in that? 
no, uh, you can't make a parallel to history. It's not a, it's not a slippery slope. Um, you know, in 1938, when my grandmother watched the Nazis walk in to Austria and within days, her uncle was taken to, uh, Dachau and, um, and eventually murdered there, that he, it was, it's not the same. Um, you know, with her rights taken away, was she unable to go to school? Yes, uh, but this is incredibly different. Um, again, it goes back to your minimizing the experience of the Holocaust. Um, and and frankly, um, you know, I'm sorry that you won't be able to go to a, a hockey game, but I, I tie back to my great-grandfather. You know, he died because he was a Jew, not allowed to access medication. If today this scenario was in front of him and he would never be able to see his child again or had the possibility of seeing a child again, I could tell you what choice he would make. Yeah, and, and the, on, the only thing I, I would add uh, is it, unequivocally there is no comparison whatsoever. And to even say that this is how it started is in and of itself delegitimizing the planned mass execution of 6 million people because of who they were. And that was the stated goal. Um, that was the reason all of this happened. I mean, we can't... You're right. Drawing the comparison, drawing the parallels is just... It, it's nonsensical. Um, I can't thank the two of you enough for coming on and just giving us the background and some understanding as to why these kinds of comparisons are... They just... They're, they're absurd, really. And I appreciate you giving us some insight. Thank you for uh, having us on and really appreciate that you um, having us here to talk about it and why this narrative is so harmful uh, to the survivors and the victims. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, That is Steve Schaefer and uh, Ariella Kimmel. Um, And uh, Ariella reached out to me last week, along with a number of other listeners saying, you know what, let's let's have a discussion around this. Um, And, it's just trying to, you know, if you listen to this show, it's the extremist, it's the over-the-top that I think gets so much attention. And it's just sort of nice to get back to, okay, let's get real about this. Let's actually take a look at what we're talking about here. And these over-the-top, ridiculous statements are not only wrong, factually, but they're damaging. They're damaging to people. And um, and they don't they don't help. They're not productive in any way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss shape or form. I'm really looking forward to this, though. Uh, We're going to talk about 
Afghanistan and how it fits into Canada's foreign policy. We had a discussion earlier this week about how foreign policy rarely, rarely rises to the level of discussion in an election campaign. And now, perhaps more than ever, it should be something that all Canadians are keeping an eye on. Take a look at Afghanistan. It is a shining example of the United States changing posture on the world stage, right? They used to be, we called them the world's police force. They were the undeniable superpower, and they sort of dictated what happened in a lot of places around the world. Clearly, they've taken a change in stance. They're not interested in that anymore. Not as much as they used to be. They're more focused on their internal issues. That has a ripple effect around the world, and it will affect us greatly. So, um, Dr. Lloyd Agsworthy, a name that is familiar to a number of you, I'm sure, um, a longtime figure on the Canadian political scene, Federal Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1996 to 2000. He's the chair of the World Refugee and Migration Council. Joining us now to talk about a piece he recently was part of discussing this very issue. Uh, Mr. Agsworthy, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, nice to be on your show, Shane. Um, Yeah, I guess let's just talk about how, I mean, we can talk about Afghanistan and how it's really a, a undeniable example of the United States changing their posture in terms of where they fit into the world stage. Um, but but there's been others, right? This is a, something that we've seen a trend towards in recent times. Well, you're right. I think that uh, the latest decision on Afghanistan just brings the point home that uh, the United States is increasingly... Uh, disinterested in uh, being a kind of major player and uh, architect of international uh, peace and order. And that uh, it puts the onus in other countries, including Canada, because uh, we have such a stake in what happens around the world. I think that's one of the uh, issues that, as you know, some of us wrote about a piece saying uh, an election campaign should be a time where at least there is an effort to uh, put on uh, the public uh, radar uh, what kind of proposals and policies and directions that the different uh, parties would like to see to help Canada sort of reassess and reimagine uh, the role we play, particularly because we can't rely on uh, the United States anymore to be the sort of backbone of all this. But the onus is going to be in other countries, and that's why. Uh, there's two weeks left in the campaign, and we hope that uh, it might spark some, at least uh, a period discussion as to what the options are from the point of view of the different uh, uh, political parties. You know, you were foreign affairs minister for a number of years, um, and you're right. Foreign affairs, when you talk about a U.S. election campaign, it's top of mind. It's one of the main things they talk about. It's a debate topic over and over. It rarely right. enters the conversation in a Canadian election campaign. Why is that? Is it because Canadians don't care, or is it a political stance? Why is it never a topic of discussion during an election campaign in our country? Well, I think part of the problem is that there's a kind of built-in uh, sort of bubble in terms of the Ottawa system. Uh, which is very much dominated by sort of uh, lobbyists, very much dominated by fairly sort of uh, uh, public uh, officials who are risk-averse. Uh, they don't want to get out in front of the skis too much on issues. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, just let's, you're, you're doing your program this morning on the impact of COVID. It's very clear that if there isn't a much better or more effective way of sharing distribution of vaccines in other countries, yes. but that's going to come back and bite us uh, because it will simply provide a, a, 
a breeding ground for new variants, and that there'll be in a world that's so interconnected. There's going to be people from coming from other countries who will bring uh, sort of uh, infections with them, and we'll do the same. So uh, there is an issue, uh, and, and let me. You know, just say the second one is you have the United Nations say that we're now into a red zone when it comes to climate. And that all the disruptions we're seeing in terms of our own country and around the world with floods and droughts and uh, sort of major hurricanes and things of that kind can increasingly be uh, attributed to the impact that uh, rising climate has. And again, that's something that Canada has a big stake because we have a lot of geography and we have a lot of climate. Where does the onus lie? Is it on the Canadian voter to make this a bigger issue or is it on the politicians? I think politicians will respond to what they think matters to the voter. So does it have to be something that us as Canadians are pushing and demanding some sort of policy around? Uh, you know, I, I think that there, there's a kind of blockage uh, in, in the sort of perceptions of that place. I, I, I want to go back to when we did uh, things like the Treaty on Banning Landmines. Uh, we were doing polling around that period of time, and it was by far the most popular and supportive policy that uh, the Canadians expressed their views on, that uh, they thought they really liked the idea of Canada being engaged, of doing its part, and of being a serious player on the international stage. But I just think there's a kind of a, a system that, whether it's in the sort of Ottawa-based media or whether it's a combined wisdom, a sort of what I used to call the junior G-men, who, who kind of become the, the gurus of politics, but they don't really understand what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and so I, I think that there's a, a combination, but there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of Canadians, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of Canadians really think that particularly as, as we've become enmeshed or integrated more uh, with, a, with global systems of trade and economics and energy and climate and epidemics and conflict, and I mean, you know, the list goes on, uh, that we better be... Uh, a, 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 not just relying upon American leadership. We have to assume some of that because there's simply not going to be there anymore. Well, and I think that is the key point. I think for us as Canadians, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, we have really benefited from being, you know, the closest ally and the closest neighbor to the global superpower. And we've kind of just taken for granted the fact that they're going to run the show and we're going to benefit from that. And now if they've changed their stance, it really requires us to be more engaged in this. Look, at, I mean, that's the axiom right there. I mean, we, we did have a luxury for a long time of being in kind of a sweet spot where we were next to this very powerful country. We shared a lot of values. Well, I don't think we share those anymore. You look at the public opinion polls, uh, you know, the divisiveness in the United States and the polarization uh, is becoming really extreme. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, we see signs of that in Canada. It's not nearly the same, and that's I think because you know our our political party system uh, works quite differently. It doesn't have that those same kind of uh, sort of uh, wedge issues that become the stock and trade of politics in the United States. Uh, but but it does mean that uh, it, it, let me put this in perspective. Uh, we're a G seven country. Uh, we have one of the most prosperous societies in the world. We've got highly skilled populations. We've got uh, a good foreign uh, 
service uh, system uh, spread around the world. We, we have to be active in that and being proactive, not just reactive. And that simply means, I think we used in our, it does going to take some imagination. And that's what we're calling for is to see where are the imaginative yeah. uh, next step points for Canada to take that, uh, that Canadians should have an opportunity to opine on as a result of the election going on. Now, understanding our place in, in the world and, you know, in our, our relative size, uh, we're never going to be the United States. We're never going to replace them. So um, if the United States has retreated and it's a new reality out there, how does Canada exert their influence? Is it by forming other alliances and bringing more countries uh, into the fold? What's the strategy? Well, I think, I think part of it, I think you know, we, we've always, I mean, going back to 1945 and Mike Pearson, I think the calculation was our best interests are served if we do it as part of a collegial, collaborative effort uh, with other governments and with other players. Uh, and here's, here's a, where I think there is a turning point. But what the Afghan uh, debacle is showing is that you cannot manage these issues from a military perspective. I mean, the idea that you can go in, invade, set up your kind of uh, reform tactics, it's going to take a, a much more subtle and I think a much more creative mm-hmm. issue. What I used to call when I was in Florida, soft power. You, you have to change people's attitudes. You have to have a different narrative. You have to provide a lot more employment. You have to deal with issues of epidemic. And I think we're, we're good at the thing. Canada has a very strong convening power. People respect us. Yes. And we should be using that convening power. And I don't mean to say that to create brand new uh, kind of architectural monument. But uh, in today's world, uh, the collegiality is one that can be shifted in focus. Uh, if you if you allow me through the Migration Rights Refugee Council, we're working now with a number of partners in the United States, Mexico, and Central America to come to grips with the border migration issues because it affects all of us. I mean, Canada imports two or three hundred thousand workers from Central America every year. It's crucial to our agricultural economy, and yet the system is breaking down. Uh, because everybody's trying to do their own thing. The Americans will do this, we do that, and we're trying to say this has got to be a regional collaborative effort. And that's, I think, the, the kind of convening power that I, I would like to see more of, and I'd like to hear what the parties now. I, I think people know that I'm a, a liberal and have been, and I think that uh, it's always been a party that, that's had those kinds of directions. But I think uh, it's incumbent on all the parties uh, to come forward with a, at least... Uh, a form of dialogue or discussion about what they think the priorities uh, internationally should be and how they think we have to uh, devote resources and time and effort uh, diplomatically and socially and others uh, to help uh, support the change. Because otherwise, you know, we've got countries like China and Russia sure. uh, and Brazil run by authoritarian leaders and they are out to change the whole world system to be in, in their uh, reflection as opposed to what we've tried to build, which is a more democratic and liberal-minded uh, order for the country. Uh, Dr. Axworthy, thank you so much for your time today. Great discussion. I really appreciate you joining us. Okay. Enjoy it as well. Thank you very much. That is Lloyd Axworthy, a name known to...
all of you of a certain generation, that's for sure. He was a Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1996 to 2000, involved in government for a very, very long time. If you listen to this show, you know that I have some issues with Facebook. Uh, in my personal opinion, much of the misinformation and division that is plaguing our society right now can be traced in large part right back to Facebook. Um, and to date, the company has shown, well, very little interest, really, in actually dealing with some of the issues that they've created. Now, this spring, they did announce plans to somehow reduce the amount of political content that we see in our news feeds. Um, how are they doing that? What are they doing? Is it working? All kinds of discussions around Facebook. So to have that conversation now, we are joined by Dr. Ahmed El-Rawi, who is an assistant professor in news, social media, and public communication at Simon Fraser University. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so to start, this, this new move that was announced, I think it was, what, March, February, March, something like that, where Facebook came out talking about reducing political content. Where did, the, where did that even come from? Well, you know, what was the thinking behind that one? I have no clue. They <laughs> never mention anything. They don't provide any details. But you need to take uh, their, their word for it. Uh, but uh, there is no way they can do so because... I'm, in my mind, everything is political. Uh, yeah. Like when, when you talk about COVID-19 and the policies surrounding COVID-19, this is the core of politics. So how can they reduce political content is beyond uh, my, my way of thinking. And, uh, they, and because they are not that transparent, we don't know anything about this issue. Well, well, this is the thing. You know, when you talk about Facebook and they come out with these grand proclamations, they're going to work with fact checkers. They're going to limit, you know, the amount of misinformation. They're going to limit the amount of political content that you see. But we saw a story as recently, I think it was two weeks ago, where Facebook, I guess, suppressed data or at least waited until it was in their favor to release it. So we have no idea what they're doing or what impact it's having, right? This is correct. This is correct. And they are not transparent at all. Uh, you know, I made a comparison in an article I wrote uh, between Twitter and Facebook. Twitter has been far more transparent than uh, Facebook when it comes to releasing data, for example, on uh, foreign trolls targeting different countries, including Canada. Uh, face, uh, Twitter released almost everything, unlike Facebook that gave us almost nothing. So we have to take their word for it again and uh, believe that they are doing a lot. But we, as researchers and also the public, don't know anything. No, we don't. We really don't. So when they talk about limiting political content, as you said, define political content, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a mission in itself. What have, they, have they stated in terms of what they'll be limiting, how they'll be limiting, what we can expect to see? And the big one when it comes to Facebook, I find, is what about the paid content? Will they limit that? I don't think they will uh, go to the paid content because that's where they get most of their revenues from. Right. And that's uh, an issue I had actually with uh, the Facebook ads that are found on the platform. I found that some of them were actually misleading with regard to our uh, current election. The majority of the ads uh, on our election uh, were paid by the Liberal Party and by Justin Trudeau. Uh, actually, I checked yesterday, uh, only the Liberal Party had about uh, f over 40% of the available ads on the election. Only the Liberal Party. If I don't count, for example, not even counting the other Liberal uh, members of the Parliament and, and Justin Trudeau's uh, 
ads. So they were actually ahead. I don't think they will come near the ads. That's my point. And the problem is I found a lot of misleading content in some of these ads. So they are not actually fact-checking them. Um, some more talk. And the other thing about Facebook, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, the fact of the matter is when they do move to um, flag something for be in, being inaccurate or being misinformation or remove something for being misinformation, it has typically spread like wildfire or fungus, pick your analogy, and has already been seen by millions or billions of people before they act anyway. That's a problem, yeah. And this is something they mentioned and I objected to because they are saying that we will only flag what goes viral. And my problem is that what about the other, let's say, millions if not billions of uh, pieces of information that do not go viral? What about the misinformation that they might contain? So all of this will be overlooked because simply the social media company is, is not really interested in what, is not viral. You know, doctor, to me, you know, trying to regulate Facebook has proven to be um, impossible because they're not interested really in, they say the things, but they're not really interested in doing the work to try and become more uh, accountable. Um, at this point, is it just abandoned face? I mean, it, just know what you're getting when you go on Facebook. Is that the best strategy for consumers out there? I think it's for, it's a good thing. Yeah, I, I believe we need to be inoculated like it's like a vaccine and protected uh, from bad information so this could even happen with mainstream media sometimes so Mm -hmm. sometimes even mainstream media they might also fail us in different ways right sure because they haven't done enough research or they haven't done their job well and there are historical uh, incidents on this issue but the thing about um, being protected i think it's the it's the best procedure I honestly don't think it's practical to fact-check every every piece of information because one individual might produce hundreds, if not thousands, of bad content. So I don't think we we will be able, uh, even with the what they call uh, the so-called AI, the artificial yeah. intelligence. I I don't believe in that because the artificial intelligence is still stupid. We haven't reached that stage where the machine will be able to detect disinformation. We're not yet there. We need human intervention. We need humans to look at the content. And even with the humans, we make mistakes. So we are not really there. So the best approach is for us to be protected from bad information. We need more literacy. We need more inoculation, or what we call a pre-debunking, which is like um, uh, understanding what disinformation is, so that if we are exposed to it in the future, we will be better protected from it. Yeah, uh, it's 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 buyer beware. It, it's go in there and knowing what you're doing. But we've we've seen, doctor, that there's a whole lot of people out there that just aren't equipped with the skills necessary to navigate their way through Facebook, unfortunately. That's true. It's really challenging. And the most important problem we have here is that it's confusing. Yeah. Especially, you know, trying to sift and understand what is true and what is false this is the most challenging thing today especially because we don't have especially for the public they don't have access to the uh let's say credible information no hello yeah i'm here yeah yeah 
It's, so for, to, to give you one example, let's say I am interested in fact-checking an issue regarding COVID-19. Uh, the problem I'm facing as a regular user of the Internet is that a lot of the credible websites are actually blocked because there is a paywall. Like, for example, the Globe and Mail, the Washington Post, yes, the New York Times. We, I can't access them if I don't pay. And who wants to pay money for, for, for information? Or, for instance, an academic journal. It could be beyond my reach when it comes to the jargon, the scientific terms used in these journals. So it's really hard for us to, as like regular users, to access credible information. So what happens in the end? We seek Reddit or Facebook for, for information about COVID-19, and that's where we go through the you know, rabbit hole and the problems start. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Doctor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me again. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Ahmed El-Rawi, who is, uh, yeah, this is what he does. He's an assistant professor in news, social media, and public communication at Simon Fraser University, talking about Facebook. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.